Are you worn out and tired with your life? Is your day filled with worry and anxious thoughts? Are you frustrated with your daily routine? Are you depressed with your life? Are you so busy that you do not have any time for yourself? Are you really doing what you want to do with your life? Do you want to change your life? And I would say to know that uh, your life is not going to change, just simply wishing for it to do so. And if you want your life to change, you have to do something about it. And so you need to muster up enough willpower to change your life for the better. All you need is some inspiration and some encouragement, which I'm hoping to offer you today, that you would make the change. And so I would say start by looking inside of who you are. Maybe start this week and change your routine. Uh, Learn a, a new trade so you can make that fortune that you've always wanted. Take some time and be merry and laugh and have fun. And don't uh, forget to make sure you get some good advice from some experts like Oprah Winfrey. She says, surround yourself with people who will take you where you want to go in life. She says, if you want your life to change, that you should praise and celebrate your life. And the more you do that, the more you'll see to celebrate that you, she says, you need to live the life of your dreams. Oprah says you need to figure out your calling sooner in life, kids, so that you will know what you were meant to be in life. She says this, motivate yourself and use your own willpower to change your life. And lastly, Oprah says, just believe because you will eventually become what you believe you are. Now, if you didn't get it, I was being a little sarcastic with you this morning. I'm not a coach, even though I have coached sports. I'm not here to inspire you or to get you all fired up that you would go out and make changes in your life. You need to understand some of those things I just said to you are lies of Satan and the world, and they want you to think that you will do better and change your life if you think in that manner. So do not buy into the lies of the world. Do not buy into the lies of Satan. Do not listen to Oprah Winfrey, but cling to the truths of the word of God. Because God does not lie. He never changes. And all that he has given you is for life and godliness. And everything that you need is found in the word of God. The new life that we experience or the change in life is what we've been looking at in Titus chapter 3. And we were there last week and we read verses 1 through 8 and we spent our time in verses 1 through 3. And today we'll look at new life in Christ again and we'll read verses 1 through 8 and we'll look at verses 3 through or 4 through 7. And last week we saw that holy living is the result of heart change by the grace of God. And we saw that he Paul gave Titus, he said, here's seven reminders to tell the believers of holy living, and also here's seven reminders of what your life was like before your heart was changed by the grace of God. And therefore, we saw last week, it is the power of the gospel that saves and changes the hearts of God's people to live holy lives. This morning, as we look at verses 1 through 8 of Titus 3, the scriptural truth is this. God saves and justifies his people according to his mercy by his works for his glory. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly 
through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The word of God. Father, we ask that you bless the reading and the preaching of the word. When you read this text, it is a text that is very humbling. Because in this text, it tells us about our life before Christ and our life after Christ. And it points to the fact that God's grace and his mercy is great. And when you read verse 3, and when you read the verses following, you say, wow, why would God have mercy on me, a sinner? Why would he give any regard to me in my life? And so let us look at this text and let us look in verses 4 through 7. Specifically 4, it says God our Savior. And if you look at verse 4, before you read verse 4, you must again look at verse 3. He writes to the Christians and says, For we ourselves were once at one time foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And last week we were outside on the grass during our service and we were uh, thankful for verses one through two and it was like, don't go to verse three because it's such a bad description. Let's just skip and go to verse four. But if you don't see verse three and who you are before God saves you, then verses four, five, six, and seven make no sense in, in that you don't understand God's grace and you don't understand God's mercy. You must see that it tells us from Scripture here and other passages that we at one time were slaves to sin, enemies of God. God, it says in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. But did you notice I skipped that first verse there, word in verse 4? It says, but, you don't start a sentence with but if you took English classes, and you know what I mean. But here, and also in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, but, after all of this picture of all who we are without Christ, this dark cloud over us, this mist upon our eyes, this blindness we lived in, when you read verse 3, and you read scripture, you say, woe is me, I used to be that way? Yes, foolish enemies of God. Then, when you read verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, there was much reason, Christian, to give joy and praise to our Lord this morning, because it says in verse 5, He saved us. And for the believer, the Christian, the follower of Christ, the child of God who's been adopted by Christ, that, that you have this life that's changed you're a different person. You're a new person. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to God. You're no longer a servant of sin. You're a servant of God. You're a child of Him adopted by a good, good Father. Amen. And so we're saved because of God's goodness and His kindness. If you go through Scripture repeatedly, from the Old to the New Testament, God's goodness, His loving kindness, His steadfast love of the Lord never ceases repeatedly. God is described because this is an attribute of God. His love, His goodness, His kindness, His holiness, His mercy. That's just who God is. And therefore, we can join with the psalmist in Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good. And forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Church, were you just singing that about how good our Father is? Did you actually mean those words or did you just join in because that's what churches do? They sing songs. Think about the words that you think. Think about, say, think about the words you sing. 
We were declaring that our Father is good because Scripture tells us that He is good and His loving kindness abounds. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, like Titus chapter 3, causes the believer to stop and causes the Christian to think for a moment about your past life and what your present life is in Christ and focusing in on God being our Savior. And it says this in Ephesians chapter uh, 2. Verse 1 through 4. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Paul's writing the same thing to Titus in verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Look at verse 4. But... God. There it is again. That should cause us to say amen and praise the Lord. But God being rich in what, church? Mercy. Do you need mercy? Do you desire the mercy of God? It says being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by what, church? By grace, you have been saved. And we'll return back there in a moment. Because to be saved by grace is opposite to be saved by any works that you and I would do. And so not by mankind, not by any man, by any woman, by any child, not by yourself, but only by Jesus Christ, our Savior, can we be set free from sin and from death. It is only by the goodness and the loving kindness of God that he saves anyone. I read to you at the beginning of the service for you who weren't in the room at the time, Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never what, church? Ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you believe that God is faithful? Do you believe that his love endures forever? That his mercies never come to an end? If you look at Titus, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, what? Appeared. Who's that speaking of? Jesus Christ. The first advent. We think it's only Christmas time. But the first advent, Christ's coming, Jesus Christ, who is God, fully God, is born, being made fully man. And we think, well, just the baby in the manger. No, his first advent is his life, his perfect, sinless life in which he went to the cross. There he was nailed there, and he died in the place for his people bearing their sins and the wrath of God, that they would be set free through faith in Him. And He was buried in a tomb. And this first advent also includes what after the third day? His resurrection. Jesus Christ is not dead. He's not in the tomb. He's risen from death to life. And He's ascended to heaven where He's ruling and reigning. And He says one day He will return. This is this picture of the first advent, this appearing. God, our Savior, appeared. Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 that Jesus appeared once for all to put away the sins of his people as him being the sacrifice. Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to Mary that Jesus would save his people from their what? Sins. This is what God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, came to do. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 to the church, verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away what? Sins. And in him there is no what? Sin. Jesus Christ, perfect, spotless, 
Lamb of God, therefore, without sin, could go to the cross and bear the sins of his people and shed his blood so that the sins of his people could be washed away, forgiven, taken away. And he would give his people his righteousness that we would stand before a holy, just judge who is the Lord God Almighty and be found justified by him. And so verse 4 declares, God our Savior is Jesus Christ. And if you look at verse 5, it says, He, which we've pointed out, Jesus Christ, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own what, church? His own what? Mercy. Do you need mercy? I've asked this already. If you think about mercy and you think about your life, some of you can tell us, here's how I've been shown mercy by this person. And this person showed me mercy at this point in my life. And this person showed me mercy over here. And all the mercy that people have shown you in life is nothing. And it's nothing in comparison to the mercy of God. We need God's mercy upon us because we are sinners. And so the second point is that God's people are saved according to God's mercy. Again, who is it in verse 5 that saves us? Who is it? Jesus Christ. He is the one. Do we save ourselves? Is there any work that we can do to save ourselves? Are you sure? Is there any? You can't think of one thing. I'm sure in a group this size, you can think of one thing that you can do to save yourself. No. There's nothing that anyone can do. And scripture is clear. We can only be saved by the work of Jesus Christ, who is God, our Savior. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, before he breathed his last, he said something. He said, it is what? Finished. The work of God is complete for providing salvation for his people. There is no more work that Jesus has to do to save his people from their sins. Amen? Amen. I don't know why it's so silent at times like this, but man, there should be joy in the life of the believer for the mercy of God and the work of God to save us. We're very familiar with John 3, 16, but what about 3.17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I have to ask this. When you look at verse 5 and you look at John chapter 3, are the saved every single person that has been and will be created? Some of you don't want to answer. Are the saved, everyone that's been created and everyone that will be created? There are some bold people to say no. Christ's death, his blood shed is sufficient to save all. But will all be saved? No. If you don't know that, the word of God is clear. Jesus repeatedly spoke of hell in the place where God's wrath would be upon those who are cast there for eternity, who are not saved by the grace of God. And so when you look at this, we must ask, what is it that Jesus saves his people from? Verse 3, it says enslavement to what? To sin. He saves us from being enslaved to sin. He saves us from the penalty of sin, which is the eternal conscious torment of God's wrath upon a person in hell. And so salvation that Christ provides for his people is from the penalty of sin. Salvation is from that death, and it cannot be accomplished by any good work that anyone does. Good works 
good deeds, right actions, a good performance in life saves no one. If you're still there in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this in verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is nothing that you can do or add to Jesus Christ's work to save you from sin and death. You might say, great, wonderful. I don't have to do anything. But I think sometimes we think we can add to Christ's work. But you cannot. To think that, it's just almost blasphemous. Christ did all the work to save his people from their sins. And he said, it is finished. And we await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hard part, though, is we memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We say, amen. We say, praise the Lord. He does all the work. But we struggle at times to still credit all of the work of salvation to God. We say, yes, God saved me, but, just like it says, but God. We say, yes, God saved me, but I gave him permission to save me when I prayed that prayer and I chose him. Some of you say, well, I would never say that. But that is a common theme with many. I gave God permission. I told him when he could save me when I prayed the prayer that day. And what that does is it grants, or it not grants, it, it declares to you that you did some type of work in salvation. Who does salvation belong to? Jesus Christ, God alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And when we think of that, in light of our sin, God's grace abounds. His mercy is wonderful because there's nothing that you or I could do or add to save ourselves. And therefore, God gets all the glory for salvation. And just as in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, or in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, as a dead slave to sin, an enemy of God, we did not give God permission to send His Son to save us from our sins. We did not give God permission, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, or 8 and 9, that, God, you can now give me the gift of faith. No, it's a gift that he gives. We don't say, God, okay, now today you can give me that gift. Do you see this trouble and problem out there? If salvation belongs to the Lord, if he is the one with all grace and mercy, when we add to it, we take away from his glory, his sovereignty, his power, his grace, his mercy, and we add something to us believing that we contributed to our salvation. When scripture is clear throughout, we bring nothing. And so not one Christian has saved him or herself. And not one Christian has given God permission to save them. God saves because of his grace and his mercy. And God gives the gift of faith so that when the gospel is declared and you have that faith and you believe in him, God gave you that faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You quoted it with me. You do not create faith in yourself. It's a gift of God, Amen. and that should be something you give thanks to, because again, if you look at your life, and you look at all the things that we think is good, all of it is tainted by sin. Every thought, every action, every word is tainted with sin, and therefore, if we add anything to our salvation, we take away from the grace and mercy of God and the glorious work that he does. Does anyone deserve to be saved? Anyone? No one deserves eternal life. But wait, I just read, look at verse 5. Go back to Titus here. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own what? <clears throat> we need the mercy of God. 
Some of you will remember last fall, we went through the attributes of God, or at least some of the attributes of God. And one of those is that God is mercy. And so even if every single created human being in all of time goes to hell for their sin against God, God is mercy. And some of you are like, wait, wait, hold on. You're saying God is mercy even if he never shows mercy? Yes. Scripture declares God is mercy. God is holy. God is righteous. God is love. He did not need to say, let there be light. He did not need to give any person life. He is merciful, and he is mercy in his nature as God. And so you may hear people foolishly say, well, God is not a God of mercy if he sends anyone to hell. You ever heard that? Maybe you declared that in your past. Jesus says in Luke 6, for 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We just read in Ephesians 2 that God is rich in what? Mercy. mercy. And what's wonderful about God's mercy, because God is mercy, Scripture tells us, just like all of God's attributes, His mercy will never fail. His mercy upon you to save you will never fail. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In the gospel of John chapter 10, you have the wonderful chapter in which Jesus says he is the good shepherd. And he describes how he lays down his life for his sheep that he takes it up, that no one controls him, that he does that because he loves his people. And it says this in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Does it say ever or sometimes? Or what's it say there? They will what? Never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Great statement of Christ and his divinity that Jesus is God. You see, God's mercy never fails, it never ends. And so when he shows mercy and he pours out his grace and he saves his people from their sins, his people will never lose their salvation. His people will be seen to the end when they will be with Christ face to face in a glorified body, in a perfected soul without any stain of sin because he is God and he will not lose his people. Church, cling to John chapter 10. If you're worrying or anxious or, or, or thinking, well, maybe I sinned so much that God is going to change his mind, or maybe I can sin so much that I can walk away from God. If God saves and his mercy never ends, then there's no point at which his salvation of his people end. And so I pray for those of you who battle with, oh, I did that again, or I did this, or God's, did I, did I do this sin? Is God going to save me? God's mercy never ends. Amen. Therefore, as he shows mercy and saves his people, he seals them by the Holy Spirit, and he sees them to the end in that day that you will be with him for all eternity. Praise the Lord. Praise him that his mercy never comes to an end. Look at verses 5 through 6. The third point is we're saved by the work of God. When I was growing up, every summer, I so looked forward to going to Heartland Christian Camp. And we would go for a week of camp. And, and somehow throughout the years, every Wednesday became this traditional day that after the morning chapel, they had Mud Day. And if you don't know what Mud Day is, uh, it was a blast. But they had this field outside of camp, this softball, baseball field, and football field. And then around the field, they had all these mud stations. 
I mean, they would for weeks fill up water in these holes. I mean, the mud was thick and it was great and it was wonderful. And they would have the tug-of-war pit that they always had every single year. You had to do that. Then they had, every so often, they would have this volleyball court that was like up to your knee and knees in mud. And you tried to play volleyball. And they had all these mud things that they would invent every single year. And then they started getting really uh, messy. And they added this huge slip and slide. And they'd pour mustard and ketchup and syrup and whatever you could think, chocolate sauce. And you had to run and slide through this stuff. And you would get done at the end of this hour and a half of games and literally you're caked with mud and you smell gross and your eyes can hardly open because the sun shined down. It's just like dried on you. And they don't let you go to the showers over by, the, by your cabins. You have to walk and you're crunching as you go down to the river and you have to get in the river and the counselors and everyone stand around to make sure you go under the water. And you had to get all this off. And they're saying, no, you're not cleaned up yet. You stay in there longer. You know, you got some mustard and some in that ear. And you got some mud in that eye. And you got to clean off before you can actually go to the showers. But when you came out of that water, you're like, wow, I feel clean. My skin feels great. No wonder people do like mud baths and mud face things. They actually clean your pores. And I remember walking back and you would be like, man, I actually feel clean. And I thought about that this week as I read verse 5. That as God saves us by His grace and mercy, it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And when I look to that word washing, it means bathing or the act of bathing or to take a bath. It was like going under that water, getting all that junk off is this picture of the sin nature in a sense being washed away by the regenerating work of God. The word regeneration there. We've looked at it many times before. It means new, literally, literally it means new birth. And unless the work or the washing of regeneration happens, no one can be saved. No one can see the kingdom of God. Turn to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at nighttime. And Jesus speaks with him about the new birth. And he says in John chapter 3, verse 3. Actually, let me start in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must have a new birth to be saved, to be in the kingdom of God. Because if you go back to Titus chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 2, it is impossible there is no way, there is no, no door opened into seeing the kingdom of God for the dead sinner who has transgressed against God. And therefore, God, the Holy Spirit, does a washing of regeneration to cause one to be born again. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet speaks what God tells him to speak. And it is written down here in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, a picture of the new birth, of the washing, of the regeneration of the heart. And it says this in verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart. Pay attention to where it says, I will. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and, I, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When it says, I will you every time, I will do this, I will do that, I will do that. Who's the I? 
It's God. God gave the prophets what they were to speak to the nation of Israel that we would read today, that we see fulfilled through the cross of Christ and the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, coming into the hearts of believers, renewing them, rewashing them, and regenerating their heart to give them new life. It says there, by the washing, back in Titus, verse 5, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that washing... A regeneration results in a changed heart. And it says there, and renewal. You see there in verse 5, it says, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It means to have a complete change for the better. Or it gives you the picture of a renovation. Some of you have renovated buildings. And some of you have been in places that just need a complete renovation because it's just been trashed and there's mold and there's rot and there's wood falling down over here and this wall is coming apart and that carpet is just rotting and all these things. This renewal that God does to the heart of the sinner is this picture of this complete renovation inside. It's this complete changing from the inside that affects the outside of the new life in Christ, which we've been looking at here in Titus. And so to live and walk in holy, righteous ways can be, cannot be done by anything you do externally. It's only done by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as God saves you and makes you His own. And He fills you and causes you to walk in His ways. Again, He does the work from beginning to end and should cause us to praise Him greatly. Because his mercy is so true. It says in verse 6, regarding this act of mercy, it says, whom he poured out on us richly through who? Jesus Christ, our what? Savior. In the book of Colossians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writes and he tells the church there that Jesus Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Again, this amazing, unbelievable act of mercy. And it says he did that, nailing it to the cross. So this rebirth and renewal makes the person who's dead spiritually alive spiritually in Christ. And so there there is a change because some of you say, yes, I used to be like that. Verse 3 resounds in my ears because that's how I was at one point. But I've been washed by the blood of Christ. I've been washed by the regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I am new. And yes, I am not perfect. Even the presence of the old nature and sin is still there. But my behavior and my speech and my thoughts have changed and are changing daily by the power of the Holy Spirit. Process of sanctification. And so, yes, when the Word of God says, Be holy as I am holy, Christian, you are holy because you've been made holy by the blood of Christ. And God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, resides in you. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the reason we can live holy lives is because it's through Christ. It says in verse 12 of John, chapter 1, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? Of God. Again, he does all the work, he gets all the glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter breaks out in this wonderful doxology, praising the Lord God Almighty for these truths that we're looking at today. He says this in specifically in response to this washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to what? His great mercy. He has caused us to be what? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Christian, believer, follower of Christ, you are now empowered by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to live and walk in holy and righteous ways. And one day, be set free from that stain of sin, that old nature, to have a glorified body and to be with Christ for eternity. And as we look at that, we come to verse 7, which we end with. By Jesus Christ, dying in our place for our sins, He is our substitution and our justification. I think that sometimes, since we look at verse 7, speaks of being justified by the grace of God, sometimes that word justified or justification, we may be not totally understand it, or sometimes we forget, or what does that really mean again? And it, it, some of these bigger words sometimes seem like they're threatening, or like, I don't know what it means. It's like, no, these are comforting, wonderful words for the believer. To be justified by the grace of God should warm your soul with great joy for the work that he has done. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here it is, the word justification or justified, it means this, very simply, to render and declare a person to be righteous. Let me repeat that again. To be justified or to justification means to render and declare a person to be righteous, specifically before the Lord God Almighty. It's a term which is a legal term Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that God is a just judge whom you will stand before and give an account. We briefly hit this last week. Again, standing before a judge who is just. And if you have broken the law, what should a just judge who finds you guilty of breaking the law do? What? He should punish you, right? He should throw the book at you. If he is a just judge, then he should give you the penalty that the book says for the law that you have broken. And Hebrews 4 tells us God is the just, holy, righteous judge whom you will give an account to. And David writes this in Psalm 130, verse 3. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, Lord, if you have a list of my sins, he says, O Lord, who could stand? I mean, think about that. Standing before a just judge and knowing that you have sinned greatly against God and he broken his law and he is going to give you a verdict of guilty, it says, O Lord, who could stand? No one. Therefore, our legal standing before God and His law is what determines our punishment or our acquittal. Legally, Scripture tells us that every single person is a sinner, passed down from Adam to every one of us, and that everyone who has lived that has, we have committed sin against God, who is the just judge we will stand before. And according to God's standards of holiness and righteousness, we are guilty. Do you agree? Exactly. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the Lord I cling. But look at verse 7. So that being justified by his what? Grace. Grace. Jesus Christ. The one whom we were not seeking seeks us and saves us for his glory. Grace is the great powerful gift 
that God saves us and that gift of salvation will never fail. And so to be justified by his grace is to be made righteous by the blood of Christ that was shed to remove your sins. And this justification comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in anyone or anything else will not save. <coughs> justification for the believers is that manifestation of God's grace declaring the Christian believer, child of God, innocent. And the reason why that is is because Jesus' righteousness have, has been imputed to you if you're a follower of Christ because of your faith in Christ. And so the just judge that you stand before sees the righteousness of Christ and rules that you're innocent. There's not just some reversal. There's, he rules you innocent because he sees the righteousness of his son in you. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Have you sinned against God? Are you glad as a follower of Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that he will not count your sin against you? The list of all those sins have been thrown to the depths of the sea and forgotten by the Lord God Almighty because he sees Christ in you, the hope of glory. And therefore, the end of verse 7 that we bring to a conclusion here, for today at least, says, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our hope is in the glorious truth that justification cannot be changed or amended in the future. We glory in the grace of God, the forgiveness of our sins, being justified and made right before God. But church, we praise him even more that God not one day in the future will open up his court cases and say, you know what? This person's been in eternity with me long enough. I'm changing my mind because back in 77 they did this. God's grace never ends. His mercy never ends. He will not change his verdict of being innocent by the blood of Jesus Christ and send you to hell. He does not change, and he will not change. That's why we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see, church, that in this chain, and this layout of salvation, that God from the beginning is the one who does all the work of salvation, and none of us do it, and he is the one who gets all the glory. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion. Completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return in the clouds of glory. And the believers will have no longer a soul that is stained with sin. And on that day, their bodies will be raised and they will be glorified and they will be rejoined with their soul perfect in holiness with Christ for eternity. Amen. It's the promises of the Word of God. Therefore, if you're anxious and you're worried and you're wondering, am I going to be there that day? I would tell you to cling to the mercy and grace found at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do. There is no prayer that you can say. Simply respond to the Holy Spirit. 
that the gospel has been declared to you and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he has died in your place for your sins and that he has risen from death to life. Confess your sins before the Lord. Believe and be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, I pray that as we move to a moment of together, corporately, physically, being reminded of your grace found at the cross, seen in the empty tomb, we pray that we would rejoice in your mercy upon our souls. Father, would you stir in our hearts a continued and growing great love and affection for you and for what you've done for us. May you continue to move our hearts to be humble before you and to declare you all glory and praise. Father, may we never cease praising you and declaring that salvation belongs to the Lord our God. Father, I pray for any who are here who have heard the good news of your sacrifice of your son to save your people from their sins. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would rend their hearts, renew their hearts, cause them to be born again, Give them the gift of faith to believe. Save them. That they would be rejoicing in you. Father, continue to work upon our hearts in this moment together as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.